Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Such an exciting episode this week. I say it all the time, but I got a chance to talk with John Bueller, who is the label director of Asthmatic Kitty Records. Asthmatic is home to um, the founder, Sufjan Stevens, and that's um, what we really focus a lot of our time on today is uh, talking with John about AK and about what it's like to have such an iconic um, artist on your roster and what it's like to deal with their catalog and and their future catalog and and all of that kind of cool stuff that goes into it and and for us uh, smaller labels who dream of uh, being a label of of that stature with an artist of that size uh, it's kind of interesting to hear um, some of the challenges and philosophies that they employ and that they experience um, with such a, a fantastic artist as uh, Sufian and such a well-loved artist as Sufian. So uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about this episode. John was uh, responded to me. We actually started chatting earlier this summer, um, about a year ago almost, about doing this episode. And he's been so helpful in setting um, me up with some other label owners, including Sub Pop and Bayonet and Ghostly and, and connecting me with some other people. He's been a huge asset and fan of the podcast. It's been so great. And of course, I love Asthmatic Kitty. I think everybody does. Um, we ironically, um, shout out, had a little message come in last week. Uh, somebody asking if we could interview AK and here we are. So I hope you enjoy. I, I want to dive in right away because I don't want to. I don't want to take you all morning. But there's there's so much I want to talk about. And and in some of our emails, there's just been some stuff that you've kind of alluded to that's really intriguing. And the label as a whole is always really intriguing because it's such a um, an iconic indie rock label. But there is a, a level of mystery to it because it's mm. not overly busy. It's not. Um, there isn't, you know, hundreds and hundreds of signings. It is a lot more selective. Um, and then of course the Sufian, uh, connection, which is also very interesting because he's a very mysterious individual as well. And an artist and his catalog has, uh, is very deep and, and is very respected, but it has some intrigue to it as well. So very exciting to talk to you today. I want to ask you first about the, the geographic side of the label because I'm, sure. I'm confused. There's no straight answer as to where <laughs> this label is based out of Wyoming or Indianapolis or Atlanta or New York. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, uh, good. Good. I'm glad that that's the impression that's I got was just pure <laughs> confusion. Uh, and of course, my job here today as label director will be to maintain the mystique. <laughs> you know, Is somebody a fugitive? Is that the thing? <sighs> Uh, no Witness comment. Protection. No comment. Yeah, no comment. Uh, well, I can't actually speak to the geography bit a bit, sure. um, and I'm sure we'll get to this at some point uh, in you know whatever, however long it takes for us to discuss. <laughs> but uh, we uh, we started the label in Lander, Wyoming, because that's where Sufian's stepdad, Lowell Brahms, mm -hmm. and co-owner of the label lived. I mean, okay. it's a beautiful little Wyoming town that has experienced a little bit of a resurgence just because of its natural beauty, but there's actually a lot of rock climbing in the area, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Okay. Um, so I think there's a, it, I'm not sure if it's still going on, but there's like an annual rock climbing conference. Anyway, the real claim to fame for Lander is just, it's a beautiful place to live. It's right. very special. Sure. So um, I worked uh, in Indianapolis when I was working with the label and so did the label's previous label director, Michael Kaufman. And 
we lived there for a couple of years. And a couple of years ago, we put the label into a state of like cryogenic freeze or hibernation <laughs> um, and have emerged out of it about a year and a half ago, realizing we just needed to, we, we could ramp things up a little bit from at least being frozen. <laughs> right. Like we could uh, defrost the label a little bit, but it needed to change in other ways. And Lowell also uh, was ready to retire. Mm. So there's just kind of a geographic necessity of moving the label. So um, despite our antiquated website, there's no remaining presence in Indianapolis. We have a couple contractors there that work for us. Okay. Uh, but, but I'm based in Atlanta and legally for tax purposes, it's based at Lowell's office in Lander, Wyoming. Uh, but the operational office is here in Atlanta in a neighborhood called Castleberry Hill. Okay. Yeah. So does it not really matter? Like location is that, do you think that, do you think it matters? Do you miss not being in New York or? Well, I've never been in New York. Uh, Sufian has, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in New York, but not, uh, not for not based out of there as long. Not yeah, not yeah. For as little time as I prefer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I love New York City, but we've never been based out of New York except to say that, like Sufian, you know, as co-owner, lives in New York City. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, it's funny that you picked up. Like that wasn't intentionally mysterious, but <laughs> well, I think convolution is the name of the game at the label. So. Sure, I think it just shows that fans don't care, you know. And I mean, no, I've been a fan no. of the label long before this podcast, and I didn't know where you're from, and I didn't care. It was about the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I actually love it when a label is in a city. I think there's a like, and by in the city, I mean, um. I mean, I shared an office for a while with Joyful Noise recordings in Indianapolis mm. and, uh, you know, Secretly is in Bloomington and, and there's labels down here in Athens. And of course, there's a lot of hip hop labels based in Atlanta. Right. And I love that. Uh, we just never saw it as a like necessary mechanism. So, right. yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I don't think fans care anymore. I, I want to ask you if we can go back to the very beginning and, and kind of when did this start? Um, and, and what was the, what was the intention behind the label back in the beginning? Yeah, that too is shrouded in mystery, even from me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I think the story that I tell these days is just that, uh, well, it's not a story. Sufian has always been, uh, even before do it yourself was an acronym. Sufian was about doing it himself. Uh, right. And so I actually don't know the internal motivations for Sufian as to why he and Lowell wanted to start a label. Like if it was wanting to have more granular control or whether it was that nobody would sign them. I, yeah, I actually right, don't know. Right. Maybe a mixture of both is would, would be my best guess. So, the label started as a way for Sufian to manage and release his own records. And it went from there to uh, signing a few artists like John Ringhofer, Half Anna Cloud, and Liz Janes. And as Sufian increased in stature and sold more records, he was able to leverage the business position of selling more records to benefit his friends right. for distribution purposes. So, wow. Uh, that was the original intent. It was very familial, uh, very personal. 
Hmm. And um, in a way, that's what we're trying to get back to again is we went through kind of a growth period and, and then a hibernation period. And, and now we're a little bit back to being that more personally related familial nature. Does so. it have like a start date? Do you have like an anniversary date that, that they look back to? Yes. Uh, I'm literally typing it into Google <laughs> to tell you. Uh, yeah, I don't know the exact date, but I'm, I'm sure that, that that's on the paperwork. Sure. Uh, but yeah, 1999. So we're oh, okay. 20 years old. It's some, some oh, day this year goodness. we'll be 20. Yeah. Oh, well, happy birthday. Almost old enough to, to, to drink. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the American... 20, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're Canadian, is that right? Yes, Canadian uh, by birth and and certainly by persuasion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's uh, that warms my heart a little bit. I feel a little more comfortable talking to you. Yeah, we can talk about craft dinner or Nanaimo bars <laughs> or loonies or toonies or yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you, where where were you from in Canada? I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, in a neighborhood called uh, Woodvale in uh, Millwoods. Okay. Went to, okay. Yeah. I uh, like. I'm from the GTA, the Toronto area, and I um, I haven't. I've been to Edmonton once. Yeah, just once, just for a day. I think I flew in. I was there for an event, and uh, I so I don't have any like good or bad comments about it. It was just <laughs> it was just all white, white yeah. and cold. Yeah. I had this fun moment where I don't know if you're aware of the band, uh, the Rural Alberta Advantage. Oh yeah. Um, oh sure. Yeah. yeah, I think they're on Saddle Creek right now. But oh, are they? He, okay. Before they were signed, he kind of came through Indianapolis, where I was living at the time, and it was just like I, of course, loved the band anyway, and just the hometown advantage. Uh, so afterwards, I kind of walked up to Nels, and and it turned out we went. Like he was a grade below me in elementary school at the same school. Oh my gosh. Like lived in the same neighborhood. So I don't know. It was just a fun That's amazing. connection. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So we Canadians are bound together, whether we like it or not. I know. And you know what? It, and I've, I've bumped into a few Canadians like, or, or Canadian connections through the podcast. Like some people have like, some people have family. I was speaking to someone uh, somewhere who had family in Toronto. And yeah, it's always just nice to have a little, there's something about geography that gives you like a, this like absurd little connection. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's uh, interesting too, Sufi and I have discussed this before, but uh, I mean, I've spent more time in the States and I'm a U.S. citizen, but I think of myself as Canadian and Sufian's manager, Lisa is also Canadian. Right. She, right. I think is, is from Toronto or at least lived most of her life in Toronto. So as a person that spent a lot of time on the border of Canada, it's interesting that quite unintentionally he's ended up with a lot of. Right. Well, and I mean, I don't know, like, I mean, you probably have more of the data side of things, but um, Sufian is, and I can't speak for the States, but in Canada and especially in Southern Ontario, Sufian is just massive. Like just, you know, he is the, he is the, like, I don't really know what term, but he's just like the mm. God of, of like indie folk and indie rock. Mm. Like there's nothing bigger than that. And, and I mean, I, and I, I don't know how, I think it's, you know, Southern Ontario and Canada, the culture is the same as the U S you know, for the yeah. most part. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and you know the entertainment. What's what's entertaining in in the states is 
is entertaining up here. The same thing, the comedy, the yeah. music, it's all the same. And so, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's you know when Sufian played Massey Hall, you know, it's always sold out, and and people come far and wide, and 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 the dedication to him is has is like you know probably ten or fifteen years old at this point, or, or yeah. greater. Yeah, he uh, toured early and often in that region of like in Ontario mm-hmm. and built up a lot of ties to like Royal city, uh, hmm. just some kind of longstanding kind of early trend. No, I don't trend setting is a terrible word, but <laughs> just formulative bands in the indie rock scene in Toronto and stayed on a lot of people's couches <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, while he toured. So yeah, right. I, uh, there's this, it, I'd have to look specifically at the data again, but I have no doubt that Canada, especially that region is, is significant for Sufian. I, I think the border is is like just psychological because you know Buffalo to Hamilton is forty five minutes, another forty five minutes to Toronto, and then it's like yeah. it's all and then Montreal's really only Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, New York. They're all everything's like a six to ten hour drive, you know. Yeah. So so really, it's just I mean, when you tell people you're going to Canada, it probably freaks them out, but it's really no different than Buffalo or oh, yeah. most of yeah. upstate New York. Yep. I, I as we're talking about Sufian and and some of his diehard fans and which it's so interesting. But I want to add, and this is something I've I've been really intrigued by, um, and it's kind of that thought of like a, a label having a franchise artist. And and you know I've I've touched on this a little bit with some of the other labels. I, I when I was talking with Mike Sniper at at Capture Tracks, we talked about Mark DeMarco a lot and. And, uh, and recently I was talking with Mute, who has New Order and Depeche Mode. And there's something intriguing as, as a small label um, myself, who looking at another label who has such an iconic artist as their franchise artist, mm-hmm. if I can use that term. I'm curious about, um, you know, what what's that like uh, and what that mentality is like for a label? Are you aware of that? Is that something that you're conscious of? Um you know, on, on your day to day? Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, in some ways that has, I mean, certainly at the beginning, uh, when, you know, pre Illinois, Sufian wasn't selling as much, but it was his label. Hmm. Um, and it still is, but somewhere in between, uh, when Sufian focused very heavily on his career, he didn't have the time to really, um, be a label right. director or, right. or owner. So he, he was predominantly focused on being an artist. Right. Um, and so we signed a bunch of other bands that all have been amazing and released just tremendous records. Uh, and all of them, I mean, I don't want to speak for any of them individually, but I think having been around since then, it, it was always tough to live in that shadow mm. of having, um, a more prominent musician sure, and mostly good implications. But I, I, if I were one of the, and I had never heard this from any of the artists, but if I were one of the artists, it would always have been frustrating to begin every review with a paragraph <laughs> about Sufjan Stevens. And that is kind of what happened for a lot of artists. And you want to kind of set your own path. So I think it carries with it a little bit of baggage that, Nobody really wants, mm. um, Sufian included. Sure, yeah. I would, I would guess. I mean, there's an so advantage like, for other artists, though. At the same time, yeah, 
I, I think that where we are now is a much healthier position. And that is if the artist is personally engaged and, and Sufian is, is interacting with the project and engaging with the project, then we release it. And if not, then it just doesn't make sense to, to, to release it. And, and that just works better. Like that kind of arrangement is just a healthier, more, you know, direct relation. I'm, I'm hopping over here, but you mentioned something over email uh, about how the focus of the label is shifting a little bit lately. Can you go into that? Yeah. So when we had Carrie and Lowell and released it, we were, I mean, this sounds a little naive, but we just weren't sure how the album would do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know, <laughs> I know retrospectively that seems silly, but of course, you know, you yeah, know that's this. A, that's I mean, fair. That's fair. Every album you listen to, you're like, "Oh, this is amazing." You know, yeah. <laughs> like you wouldn't put it out if you didn't think it was worthwhile. So, yeah. um, you you really do treat, and they just kind of kind of become your children. And at some point, you've listened to it enough that uh, you you lose kind of objectivity, like marketing, mm. sales, objectivity. So that's where we were, I think, with Carrie and Lowell was let's just put this out into the world, and that's kind of the end. You know, yeah. like we're just kind of not the end of the label, but we wanted to, so the way that labels usually, or at least independent labels and also large businesses work is they, you just kind of wake up one morning and nobody has any money to write the checks anymore. And that's the end of that. <laughs> um, and we didn't want that to happen to us and not that it was on its way to happening, but we kind of wanted to slow things down and be better financial stewards of what we'd been given. Mm. So so after so preemptively to Carrie and Lowell, we decided to put the label into a kind of a state of hibernation. And then over the course of like one or two years, Carrie and Lowell did really well. Uh, and we're at a state now where the, we still have this significant back catalog, but we're in a different place now where the artists that we're signing have are more personally related to Sufian in the sense mm. that he's engaged with the project. So we're not actively recruiting new artists. Right. Um, and I know every label says that, but it, it really is true for us. Right. So, right. Well, we have to give a little shout out to, can you pronounce this properly for me? Your latest release and Angelo D'Augustine. Did I say that right? Yeah. Uh, close. Uh, okay. Angelo D'Augustine. D'Augustine. I mean, you're doing good. At, yeah. We're, we're trying to build our roster of signing unpronounceable. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I personal think that, names. Well, so. you know, and I have a really tough job here because everybody else on the internet just types it or copies and pastes right. it, but I have to actually right. say it out loud. Uh, he is probably one of my favorite, um, new artists to emerge. And I think there's a lot of people in the indie music scene who would say the same. Um, and I, I, his first record was phenomenal. And then his second record, which came out just a couple months ago was even better, which is insane. Um, oh, thanks, I absolutely love that artist and the way that you guys have presented him and originally to the idea of, of him being all on kiss, all on tape, um, yeah. in the bathroom, I think it was or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, what? and then this new record is, um, everything has been so subtle about it, but it is outstanding. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. It's nice to know that people are listening out there. I mean, we know that they are, but also nice to know that, uh, you noticed how we wanted to release it. And yeah, Angelo did record his first record that we released, not his first record, uh, but his first record on the label. Mm -hmm. Uh, he just couldn't find the sound that he wanted. And so he set up an analog tape machine in I think his bedroom, or a room and then ran the chords into the 
bathtub in the bathroom and would hit play or record on the tape deck and then run into the bathroom and mm. sit in the bathtub and play. And I'll be honest, I actually, I like both records a lot, but there's kind of an earnestness to, to swim inside the moon. Right. That is really special to me. Uh, and then tomb is just, you're right. It's, it's another leap forward for him. So thanks for noticing. He's, he's great. Yeah. Uh, he's just a gentle soul as well. Like personally. And do you know we're if it, really lucky to have him on the label? Do you, speaking of the bathroom thing and, and you're right. They're two, <laughs> they're two, um, they're two different. Let's go back to that. Yeah. Let's, let's go, go back, back to, the, to bathroom. the bathroom. Um, they're, they're two different records. They're completely two different records. Um, and they, they both have their own, um, uh, I, yeah, their own vibe that works really well. I think it was him because this has stuck with me because I'm an engineer and I, I like the recording process a lot. And I think it was him. And and I don't know if you, you could correct me, but that said something about the reverb in the bathroom um, uh-huh. ends up being a part of the instrument or ends up being a part of the writing or the recording process because it, it uh, it's almost like a, a, a second voice. Was that yeah. him that said that? Yeah, it was. Well, I think that's the so interesting profound. Thing, yeah, like it is an echo back. It's an acknowledgement of what you're saying is is existing in the universe, right? Mm. Uh, we did a little bit of, re- you know, you, you know all about this, but kind of the one sheet deep dive that you have to do. Mm-hmm. And we wondered, uh, what is the history of reverb? And it turns out that uh, Angela wasn't that far off. I mean, the original band that did reverb did it in a shower, like the engineer, uh, and this is on Wikipedia, but, um, but yeah, I think it was like mid fifties, you know, it was some, uh, it was a boy band essentially, but, uh, yeah, they, they just couldn't get the sound right. So the engineer like ran the, just did exactly what Angelo did. Just kind of ran the, the studio chords into the shower. Like, Mm. um, and there's all this kind of history of just, there's something about, I mean, we all know this because we love to sing, you know, in, in the shower, but there really is something about that, that echo. And I think for Angelo, it, it went beyond just sounding good and into something perhaps metaphysical or spiritual or whatever, you know, it, it was so. And, and so um, it, it's a fantastic record. And, and uh, Thanks, Scott. so the, but the, the connection, so, so how does that, a record like that or an artist like that play into the new vision of, uh, of the, of the label? So Angelo, uh, I've known Angelo for several years because Dennis and Whitmere, uh, managed mm. Angelo for a while. So oh, okay. I saw Angelo play a long time, like four years ago now, maybe. Mm. Um, and just have always loved his music and been an appreciator from a distance and, he had this record, which was Swim Inside the Moon, that another label had tried to, you know, I don't actually know the full story, so okay. I shouldn't secondhand it, but I think my my recollection is they tried to add some components to the record, and he sent over this version to myself and Sufian, or he sent it to Sufian, I think he was in town, and Sufian and him met, and because um, Sufian also, I think, knew him through Denison. And Sufian and I both just loved it. Uh, mm. I think Sufian's email to me was, I, you know, something like, I love this, what do you think? And I happened to be in Paris at the time um, on a business trip, not for the record label, but for the tech company I was working for at mm. the time. And it just, 
like even now visualizing kind of the cobblestone streets of Paris and the long staircases, (laughs) that album is now permanently embedded in Paris for me. When I go back, I hear it again, even if I'm not sticking the headphones in my ears. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. um, Yeah. That was kind of a cold smoky February. And so that's kind of how that happened. It just was this, it kind of hit two criteria. One, it was personally connected to Sufjan. Sufjan had, like wanted to release it and wanted to know what I thought about it. But secondly, it just didn't have a home. Right, so right. I, I don't, you know, Sufi and I haven't had any deep conversations about the philosophy of the label. And mm-hmm. um, that's not kind of how Sufian works anyway. But if I could characterize it, I would say Sufian is providing an opportunity for people like him now, if that makes this any sense. Like, Okay. There wasn't really a place for his music, so he made this label. Mm. And I think in a similar way, we want to be a home for this works of art that don't... We don't want to add anything that's unnecessary, so we're not scrambling over other labels to sign anybody. Like, if they can get signed and get a good contract, then great. Like, mm. that's fantastic. If we can offer a home for releases and artists who don't fit anywhere else, we'd much rather do that than trying to... That's great clawed at the top and that's so nice it's so hard to for us today in the the diy era of of 2019 it's so hard to remember what it must have been like for sufian back in the early 2000s to be making such weird music um you know in an era where people were looking for the next dave matthews you know yeah yeah well and not only that it wasn't i mean we think of sufian uh as a well not we but you know, as a folk artist, right? Mm-hmm. A guy and a guitar. But a lot of Sufian's early releases are kind of challenging. I mean, Enjoy right. Your Rabbit is one of my favorite records of his that doesn't really sell super well, mm-hmm. but uh, it was pretty strange. Um, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, I don't, yeah, it wouldn't have had a home for sure. Um, speaking of his catalog, and I know that you've, and I want to ask a little bit about his artistry, but um, I know that you reissued Avalanche recently, which thank God, I really appreciate that. That's something oh, I've been waiting for. Um, but um, what kind of intrigues me about an artist like Sufian, who, who has been prolific, who has a catalog, and but has such diehard fans that gobble everything up, um, mm-hmm. you know, cause of, he has all these side projects that he's been a part of. Um, I think it's an obvious blessing for a label, but I'm curious if there's another side to it. How do you avoid taking advantage of such supportive fans? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, we're lucky. I, I, I don't know. I'm a big, so this is a little bit of a, uh, rabbit hole thing but fandom is such a weird thing right like Mm -hmm. i'm a big fan like i watched game of thrones last night i'm a big star wars fan um i love star trek like i'm watching the new discovery series and one of my favorite things to do after an episode plays is to go check out what people are talking about in the subreddits and twitter yeah you got to do it there and i think just over the years i mean i don't know what has changed or if it's changed but there's just this I think we'd all agree, even going up to politics, there's like this viciousness, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of lack of actual coherent conversation. And it's just mean. And I think I see that too with other artists who just jump uh, 
I don't know. There are some really, there are people out there who are fans of music and TV and works of writing and art who just fan is not the word for them. They're just mean, you know, yeah. they just love to hate yeah. They're haters, That's right? True. But yeah. that they pick something that they think they own because they liked it. And now they get to barrage people on Twitter <laughs> about it, you know? Um, we don't have any of that. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have any negative fans, but like our fan base is a re- there's not another word for it than blessing. I mean, there a lot of very kind people. Uh, they're definitely enthusiastic, but I would never trade our you know Sufian's fan base for any other artists or you know what pro- it's, projects. It's so base. true. And I was I was going to ask you about that, and, and I I was just kind of curious. I mean, I'm I'm looking back and I'm thinking this guy has gone. And I think I think ninety percent of it is attributed to his catalog and 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 how flawless it has been. But he's just um, seems to to avoid any sort of controversy or conflict. Um, and it's really hard to find someone who doesn't like him, or at least doesn't respect him. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. I think uh, he has had some flawed releases. <laughs> but, uh, okay. uh, and he he would, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I, I just, I just mean in the sense that uh, I just mean flawed in the sense that um, I don't know. That's such a dangerous word, but <laughs> everything he's done has been the right thing for the right moment right, uh, in right. his career. He's very been very, and I think part of it is anyway. I think you were saying that more as a statement, so I agree with that yeah. in principle, uh, if not in hyperbola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and it, and I, I think um, I guess the you know my, back to my original question is. It, it it would be hard for me as uh, uh, you know with a little bit of a capitalist you know entrepreneurial spirit with a little bit of a opportunistic spirit to to be um to not ask Sufian to record the phone book and press it to double vinyl <laughs> right you know like cuz and that would sell you know that would sell yeah i i think that uh well we do get really concerned and and there's a number in my head every year that we like for every calendar year I'm wondering if someone bought everything that we've released for Sufian, how much have they spent? Mm. You know, to say there's a show that they went to and, and uh, you know, we, we think about this a lot, and, or at least I think about it and we have conversations internally. How much are we asking of Sufian fans? How much money do they really want to spend on this guy? Right. And can we make it accessible in such a way that they don't have to spend, right? That they can still... Yeah. Get on, and, and this is not a conversation. Again, really, this whole conversation should have been. I should have couched it with. I really do my best job not to represent or to restate anything Sufian says. I'm sure, not Sufian, that's fair. and yeah. um, but I do think that at least from a fan perspective, Sufian has always tried to give fans value. I think there's a weird, not weird at all. There's a. I think he has a sense of value and almost his. There's a sense of thrift, like I, mm-hmm. that word kind mm-hmm. of brings up like value world or goodwill. But I actually think it's more like, is he earning what people are paying him? Right. And so, I try to replicate that in our marketing and our releases, and not take advantage of the fact that maybe people would spend more. Yeah. But I think there's a, truthfully though, Scott, there's like an intrinsic cost. Like if you just continually push out shit. <laughs> You're going to sell it at first, but yeah, it's an no, illusion. Eventually, yep. you're going to start to nibble at the edges of your that's of a great point. The enthusiasm of fans. So, 
I, I wanted to ask you also, you know, when I was talking with Carly Starr of Sub Pop, she said something that has stuck with me for a really long time. And it was the the idea that there are still 13 and 14 and 15 year olds in high school who are discovering Nirvana for the first time and downloading. Bleach. Oh, yeah. I want to. Yeah. Do you notice that happening now with, you know, teenagers who who may not have been born when Michigan came out. I don't know if that's, I don't know, but like, oh, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? People who are coming of age and discovering uh, Illinois for the first time. Yeah. So this is actually kind of, a, it's interesting you bring that up because I had this same conversation with somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago about this and mm. our demographics, uh, the, at least that we have access to. So that's like Spotify or Apple music or kind of the data analytics that we can see are of course skewed because those platforms skew younger, right? Right, that's true, um, that's true. But we can kind of correlate data in as non-creepy ways as uh, we try to do yeah. on who is our audience. And I think there's this weird gap. Like, I think there's people like me who are like 35 to 45, you know, who were around when Illinois came out and kind of part of, like our formulative years were the beginning of Pitchfork, you mm -hmm. know, and yep. Built to Spill and and yep. The National, you know, the early yep. release. So all that kind of uh, Joanna Newsom, you the, know, like the, all these. Like the Paste Magazine era, the physical, <laughs> yeah, physical the magazine. Paste. That's right, the, yeah. yeah. That's a great, yeah, the Paste, the yeah, CD. whenever somebody writes that book, the, yeah, the rise of the, the, the um, Soul Seek Napster generation, yeah. Yeah. right? <laughs> Man, I miss Soul Seek. That was such a great little tool. We didn't um, have that. Oh yeah, you know what? I do remember that. Yeah. It was like a little bird. It was almost like a Twitter icon, if you recall, but it was a great way to, it was like the indie version of Napster, you know, like Napster was a dumpster fire. So you know, listen, I got to, I got to interrupt you here because we have this very special connection when I was doing my research last night and, and this is beyond the Canadian connection here. And I want you to tell me if this is true. And I, I'm sorry for uh, outing some illegal activity here, but you and I share something in common because I read somewhere that you downloaded a copy, a pirated copy of Radiohead's Hail to the Thief back in 2003. <laughs> wait, wait, where is that? <laughs> where, what kind of, Scott, this is, uh, what kind of deep dive are you doing exactly? No, hey, John, was... I, just, I just wanted to make a connection, but I was studying your movements for the last three weeks and I noticed that you, you really like yeah. bagels. Yeah, we, yeah. Have a, we have a private investigator budget here on the podcast. Um, wow. No, this was on. This was a, an article about the leak of of Carrie and Lowell, actually, and, uh, and it was yeah, yeah. it was something you mentioned. And listen, um, I'm sure everyone's it's all forgiven now. But um, I I had that exact same. I downloaded that early rough mixes that came out back when yeah. Kazar. Oh, man. What a special time to be alive. So let me. Sorry, uh, <laughs> can we can we do another rabbit hole for a second? Yeah. And I don't want to. I re, I meant to take notes. So let me get back to your original question. Sorry which, about that. I just remembered that when you were talking about the soul seek. So what was so this? We can edit this out maybe. But what was your original question? And it was about like I want to talk about soul seek for a second, if I can just indulge myself. Oh well, um, we were talking about the younger generation and yeah, the yeah. new generation so, coming up. Sorry, John. Oh, this is great. This will all segue together. So to to put it shortly. We have this gap of people that uh, who are like this Sufian fan, who I would classify as people that listen to Sufian on a regular basis and know who he is and spend money. So that's 35 to 45. And then there's kind of a chasm and it's like 18 to 25. Hmm. And I think that just Carrie and Lowell came out for them in formulative years. I think the pieces that I'm slightly uncomfortable with is just the memification of Sufian as like a sad boy. It right. just kind of 
perpetuated meme culture in yeah. ways that I'm frankly uncomfortable with, but sure. what, you know, it just kind of, th there's like entire Facebook groups that are dedicated to Sufian memification. Of course there's entire Facebook groups dedicated to memification of all kinds of, of everything. Things, but yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that just, and also I'm embarrassed to say, but we engage on like, this was before 4chan like contributed to the downfall of democracy, but um, you know, we, we even engaged on like these kind of at the time new channels like mm -hmm. Reddit and 4chan and even BitTorrent sites, right? So, mm. so I feel like we, uh, I don't know. So that's that's the audience. Is there's this gap? I mean, there was this article last week about Casey Musgrave, who's I just absolutely adore. Like I'm a huge Uber fan. Of yeah, such Casey. a great record. It's such a great record. Like I. It's so po it's at least popular in my circles that I uh, immediately am inclined to not like it, but I can't help it. It's such a well-formulated, I couldn't well stop listening to it, yeah. And she said last week uh, she'd love to collaborate with Sufian. And so I like forwarded wow. that to everybody. It was like, hey, everybody, let's make wow. this happen, you know? Uh, and I think that she's probably part, I don't actually know her age, but I'm guessing that at least her fan base, if not her, are part of that generation that kind of grew up listening to Illinois and Michigan. Yeah. I wouldn't want to assume that of her, but... She's probably emblematic of, well, you know, I don't know your age, but at least my age, we listened to Illinois on CD, and now there's a whole other generation of people who maybe their dads or moms were listening to the CD in the car or. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's such a, I don't know, we didn't do it on purpose, you know, that wasn't intentional. I think, I don't know how we did it, and I almost feel like trying to dissect it would make it fall apart. So, hmm. but I did want to, uh, address kind of the, we've kind of meandered away from it, but like, I do really miss, all right, so let me say that I'm really thankful for things like Spotify or Apple Music because they do enable, it's true, they are income drivers for a lot of our back catalog and mm -hmm. Sufian included in significant ways, uh, in ways that would never have been possible if we were still reliant on the physical market where... Yeah, I was curious of that. So like it, it benefits a label like you guys when people rent the music, so to speak, of a back catalog. Yeah, yeah. I think benefit is, I mean, as a net positive, yes. Mm -hmm. Like are there mm -hmm. negatives? And I think part of the negative is just that uh, we're moving back to the kind of 1960s gateway or gate like gatekeeper culture of these digital platforms are now determining actual income levels for artists. And that's what I'm uncomfortable with yeah, is, sure. well, we benefit from it and I wouldn't, we're not going to take our music off of streaming platforms. And we've always been uh, like, you can't fight the future. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. at the same time, I think that what we've seeded like us, meaning music fans is, um, the kind of sharing curatorial, like individualized curatorial culture of, yeah, yeah. It's one I can type out really easily, but not say that curatorial culture that something like SoulSeek or BitTorrent would have allowed, right? Mm. So uh, as someone that is uh, or has been in the past like a music pirate, and I still frequent, you know, indie BitTorrent sites and hip hop BitTorrent sites, and there's a couple of websites that I still download from. 
honestly, that's where I get some of the most interesting music. And it's not Spotify playlist because it never surfaces that information to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't even know how to follow somebody. Like I, it's just so noisy. Yeah, over no, there. that's that's a good point. So I think we've lost something and gained something. And um, anyway, yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, those there, there's uh, so many interesting things. I really just don't know what to grab a hold of there because there's so much that's, uh, and I and I think, um, I think you and I are from the same era. I mean, we both downloaded that that Radiohead record. Actually, yeah. I actually pirated the um, uh, pirated uh, horrible word because it, it was Canadian. But um, I remember <laughs> I remember downloading the uh, the Kid A record back in high school. Uh, yeah. yeah, and but it wasn't. It was like my buddy Jeff and I, um, we clicked, uh, we clicked download to the, the, how to disappear completely. And we, and then we went and played outside for two hours and then we came back to see if that uh, one MP3 had been downloaded. Yet. <laughs> that's that, was, awesome. that was such a great memory, but anyhow, yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting. And, and I've noticed this talking with other labels. And as I study some of the, the history of music and the history of the label, is there just seems to be nothing that you can really anchor yourself to in the music industry. Everything is so always true. changing. And I mean, well, for you guys and, and for Sufian's career, I mean, he would have grown up with, with sampler CDs and, um, yep. and, and he would have had, he probably would have sold so many Illinois on CD. And then to be flash forward now where people who haven't, um, weren't even alive at that time who are, enjoying yeah. and discovering Carrie and Lowell and, and dis- discovering his back catalog on Spotify. I mean, it's so true in a way it's beautiful. It, you know, it's really cool. Huh? I've never used the word beautiful to describe it, but you're <laughs> absolutely true. I had, I had a guy email me who's starting his own label uh, and he was looking for advice and, and I felt bad cause I just didn't have time to meet with him. And, um, so I was like, I, I should at least send him an email, you know, mm-hmm. and dispense wisdom or whatever. And I realized I have nothing for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, I teach a little class at University of Georgia. Uh, like, and by class, I mean I go in once a semester and teach a session okay. of a class. That's cool for a music marketing class. And one of the my favorite things to point out is that our conversation when Illinois when we were going to release Illinois was like, should we put it on this iTunes thing? Like, should we do and like, that was literally the conversation Yeah, sure. was, and that, that, you know, that was a long time ago, but uh, the idea that I, I think that we've been tricked by tech platforms that they're permanent solutions mm-hmm. and yeah. Oh, for sure you know, we're all capitalists here. We buy, we're commodifying music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just think we should shed any illusion that like anybody's our buddy and is going to, yeah. you know, like Spotify is going to be here forever. And what I told this guy was like, last week we were trying to pitch artists to Spotify. I still have artists who are like, Hey, are you going to pitch me to Spotify? And that doesn't work anymore. They're, they're closing down the, the like they're personalizing and mm. sor- outsourcing the playlist curation to AI. Mm. So so you can throw a bunch of money on something and and create a business around a particular direction, but I think it's just a waste of time. Like you have to build permanence around structures you can control, which is quality, integrity of your business, uh, you know, sustain financial sustainability, and beyond that, it's not that you don't pursue like Spotify followers, but you just hold it loosely, That's right? Good. And yeah, and you build uh, 
like even for Angelo, you know, how do we build as many inlets to his music as possible so that if one closes up, it's a little bit of a loss, but it's not going to kill us. That's uh, smart. So that's, yeah, if anybody is starting a label or starting a new band, like do not, my, I know this isn't an advice show, but we just can't as an industry be so, uh, I don't know, what's the word, Scott? Like we can't throw ourselves at a platform mm-hmm. disingenuously mm-hmm. and betray the quality of our music just because some platform is going to put it on a playlist and we're going to get $40,000 cause it's on some playlist for a week. So that's, you know, that is great advice and, uh, and we can make this an advice podcast, but that, that is great advice because, uh, you know, on one hand, it's a testament to the songs. It's a testament to, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, the, the catalog of your label and, and specifically Sufian because those songs outlive whatever these, these platforms are. They, they die and yeah. then these songs are yeah. loved on vinyl and then they're loved on yeah. whatever the next thing is. And uh, and I have found myself tempted to release B sides and release stuff quickly, um, just as another chance to get a you know, or to even and I've I know this is a hundred percent true across the board, but I'll, to to even write songs that would be playlist friendly, mm, uh, mm, and mm. you know, so and that I that could be a problem. I think that could be a problem. Yeah. I think it's how be- long have you been? I didn't do as much research on you. <laughs> <laughs> I only I only stalked you for a day or two. Uh, I saw the black car up front. You, yeah, how long have you been releasing music for uh, Scott? Um, I have personally. Uh, I started uh, um, an independent, like independently releasing my own music back in two thousand and five. Uh, I think that was okay. probably the first time I yeah. printed a CD. Yeah. So think about all the formats that we've gone through and especially digital like all oh. the like e-music yeah. like who, like e-music i feel yeah. like remember that trial like, you used to get like 40 songs if you signed up yeah. for a week trial <laughs> yeah but i got so much music through that <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I know it was permanent uh, too yeah um I, I yeah i john this to this point it is if i was personally re- releasing my own cd every two years i was changing the url on the back of my cd to a different social media right. platform. So yep. in 2005, yep. it was pure volume. Then it, then it was MySpace yeah. and then it was Facebook. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look at, so I was initially hired uh, by Michael Kaufman just around the Illinois release date to revamp Asthmatic Kitty's MySpace page. So okay. I'm totally dating myself yeah. here, but, um, and that was quaint. I think I updated it and we never updated it again. Um, <clears throat> but I, it was interesting just, I'm sure you saw a couple of weeks ago where MySpace was like, yeah, all the music that people uploaded, it's all gone. Right. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, we, we get lulled into this sense that everything that's digital and put in the cloud is there forever. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like if you question that assumption, even for a second, you know that it's not true, but sure. there's kind of like, we've bought into the idea of trusting the internet mm-hmm. as a, as a permanent archive. But the reality is there's a lot of music that MySpace lost that someone's going to really regret. And yeah. I, I mean that li- literally like there's, That's good there's point. Music. I mean, I remember some guy and I lost his link. Like it was some folk artist in China who sent his music to me in like 2010 or 11. Like he was still using MySpace because it was one of the only things that China wouldn't block or something like that. And it was so unique. It was, I'd never heard anything like it. And I really wanted to sign him and it didn't work out. And now 
I would never, like I, I actually went to find the link and it's gone. Like, of course his music is gone. So mm. where did he go? How do I find him? Like, does he have copies of that music? Mm. Hopefully he does. I mean, yeah. The, you know, there's all these labels now that are reissuing things, but I, I believe that, that a future label in like 20 years will be somehow recovering digital art. You know, they'll get like one of the MySpace hard drives and yeah, reissue. That's, <laughs> like, that's true. They, they will find some gems in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, so to that point, we just have to like build our own fortresses. We can't like you, you build your own Island. You can't, you can't build it on someone else's platform. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask, speaking of platforms, <clears throat> This just popped into my head now. I want to ask you about the history and the connection of Bandcamp with you guys, because the first time I ever heard of Bandcamp was when um, Sufian released All Delighted People. Maybe I was behind, but that was back in 2010, I think. W yeah. What was the, um, I mean, they certainly weren't uh, as as big back then as they are today. Um, and and I'm so happy for them to have, to have survived so long and to be so impactful today. But yeah. what was that connection back then? Uh, let me think back on that. Uh, it would be interesting to go back through my emails, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, and look at that. I think it was a pretty bold move. Yeah, I, th I think like retrospectively, uh, you know, it's like we put our music on the internet. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan. Like uh, this uh, podcast has not been sponsored by Bandcamp, to my knowledge, but I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Bandcamp and the people behind Bandcamp. Yeah, and, same. Um, you know, just like I don't think all of Sufian's music is perfect. I don't think the platform is entirely perfect, but I appreciate more than any other platform what they've tried to do. And it was really revealing to me uh, when we were releasing Carrie and Lowell because I wanted to do my my job with every release is to never for someone to never blame me. <laughs> it's a really lazy <laughs> approach, but I never want anything to be because I didn't work hard enough. Sure. And yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the great things about releasing music is, you know, it's going to happen. It's a predictive event. Mm -hmm. So you can chart things back and project manage and, and really anticipate a lot of challenges that you're going to come up against. And so when I put out a piece of music, when I, when we release a record, I want to make sure that I've done everything for the artist. And the only person to blame was either just chance or fate mm -hmm. or, or not me. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's good. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so to kind of color that a bit, like with Carrie and Lowell, I courted everybody. We went, I flew to iTunes and sat and got kicked out. Like I was playing the music for them early. And then they're like, John, I'm sorry. Like I had like two hours booked wow. for them. And they're like, Hey, we gotta, we, we gotta end this early. Cause Bob Dylan's coming in. And I was like, well, <laughs> Oh fuck. Like, <laughs> uh, and they were really sweet. It was good. Like yeah. I went to every platform, like went to Spotify, went, you know, which was still kind of a fledgling platform yeah, back then. True. And I'll, and at the end of the day, and I'm not super bitter about this, but at the end of the day, the only platform that really came through with promises was Bandcamp. Wow. Everybody else, like, you know, not intentionally, I don't think, but like, and it has nothing to do with anybody personal, but the reality is that at iTunes, you have, or Apple Music now, you have, you might have an, an indie rep who is super thrilled about a record, but they're also up against like Darius Rucker's 20th anniversary compilation, right. you know, for, yeah. for editorial coverage. And yeah. that's the same with Spotify, right? So, so it has nothing to do with individuals, but it's the corporatism that kind of takes over. And as independent labels, it was this realization that there's a ceiling for independent music 
whether we think of it or not. Mm -hmm. And as an independent label, I will never be able to go to somebody and say, hey, you should put this out because if you don't, you're not going to get the next Adele record Mm -hmm. uh, exclusive or whatever. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's a good point. And Bandcamp, so the long circuitous point of that is Bandcamp came through for us. And so uh, they featured it heavily. They drove traffic and... Um, I've always been big fans of them and their platform. And anyway, it's really simple how that little collaboration came out. We just were on every digital platform that we could and Bandcamp was one of them. And I just loved their approach and their honesty and the simplicity of the platform. And it just made sense to do it. Hmm. So I, was it exclusive <clears throat> with them before iTunes? Cause I want to know why did I buy it from Bandcamp? Like, yeah, I, I can't so, remember why. Well, this is, a, I mean, so this isn't directed at anybody personal, and most of the people have since changed jobs sure. and are working in other industries. But we we brought it up with, like, everybody. We were like, hey, this record's coming out. And everybody was like, yeah, we'll release. Like, Sufian wanted it out, ASAP. Mm. And the only people who responded to that were Bandcamp. I mean, it was like, they were like, we would love to release this. So the reason why you bought it on Bandcamp is because it came out on Friday morning on Bandcamp. And by the end of the day, we were fielding calls from Apple. Well, oh, iTunes right, because New Release Tuesday, it was still Tuesday yeah, at that point. Yeah, ah, yep. okay. so they were like, you can set it on Tuesday. And we were like, we want to release it today. And then, of course, by Saturday morning, it was up everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Because uh, that was his first that's why. follow-up to Illinois, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it should, that should have been a pretty, that was a big deal, in, and certainly in my circles. Yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Sufian tends to be on this five-year cycle, which I don't know whether that will hold true or not, you know, for the next time. But, um, yeah, it felt it felt like a really long time between Illinois and Age of Odds. Well, so, yeah. yeah. And and after that as well. I mean, and that's why I, I was curious, too. And, and, you know, all my friends are curious. But like, uh, he is, he's seemingly prolific. And, I mean, in one sense, he's... He works with various artists and various projects, and um, but then there's these really long gaps between his his proper studio solo records. How do you see that? How is someone so artistically prolific, but also seemingly protective and patient? Mm. What a great question, Scott. Thanks, uh, John. <laughs> uh, well, let me answer first as someone that works for Sufian and someone who has worked at a lot of different kinds of companies. I've worked in academia, like I worked at a university. I worked at a tech company. Mm. Um, I ran a video game store. Oh, wow. <laughs> I delivered newspapers. <laughs> uh, among all the people that I've met, many of whom are, I still think of as wonderful mentors and bosses and um, friends and coworkers, mm. I've never met anybody that works as hard as Sufian. Wow. Never. Wow. And, and, the guy just is always working. And when he's not working, he's hard not working. Like he is specifically taking breaks. Mm. So so um, I think to answer part of that question is just, he's just always working on stuff. And it may not always be the next record, but I also think, and I don't have any insight any more than you do, but I think I'll answer this now as like a fan. I just think that he records so much all the time, is always writing music that, when the moment feels right, he's able to coalesce it in a way that makes sense to him, hmm. that he that is predetermined by him or self-determined. Yeah. So I think too, uh, 
you know, not all artists can afford to release a record every five years. Um, but Sufian has somehow managed to do that. And I think it's just because he has a keen sense of timing and whether that's instinct or, you know, predetermined, I just don't know. But it's this combination of like working super hard all the time on all kinds of projects and knowing when it's time to release something for yourself and when it's the right time. Does, does the, um, thinking about his, his studio records, his solo records specifically, um, do you, is the pressure increasing because I mean, Carrie and Lowell was ended up being so, uh, I mean, it's, it's now up there. And, and I think a lot of people would say it's their favorite of his records. Um, whereas, you know, that might've been a, um, maybe could have been a low point in his career, but it turned out to be such a huge record, especially in this indie folk era has the, is the pressure increasing on him or, or on the label to continue that streak? Uh, I mean, you'd have to ask him. I don't have any sense of increased pressure or strictness. I mean, if Sufian sent me a record of him, um, you know, doing armpit farts, yeah. and that's what he wanted to release. Yeah, like, you heard it here we, for, first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we would, you know, if that's what he wanted to do, we would find a way to do it. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. He might, you did, yeah, he might feel personal. I don't know. I don't yeah, want to speculate yeah, sure, on how sure, sure. feels. That's the, but um, I don't. Like as a yeah. label, no. I mean, if Sufian also said, hey, I'm never releasing another record again, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's not my job to force artists to, or cajole or manipulate artists into releasing records. I, I feel like as a label director and as as yourself and me, as people who work with, or even ourselves or other artists, our job is to encourage it and mm -hmm. to kind of gently, I've often thought of my role as in a religious sense, like a pastoral role, yeah. like guiding artists yeah. to the creative vision that they want to inhabit. Mm. Uh, but my job great. is never to like push someone or like to use financial circumstances to manipulate a release. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a know. great, that's a really good point. Are you an intentional person in your work and in your life? Like, do you have a strategy or a, or a philosophy that guides how you do your work? <laughs> uh, just my 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 private investigator asked me to ask those things. He, just, <laughs> he noticed you're you're very uh, very thoughtful and very intentional. Oh, thanks, Scott. No, uh, that's the investigator yeah. speaking. Yeah, I've got like a videotape of you, John, of the last 72 hours. and you. Uh, I'd say that my uh, goal is more of like intentional chaos. I, I feel like I'm often Tarzan swinging from one item to the other. Um, I, I try every morning to like I have a to-do list and I have a fairly robust organized system for accomplishing work. Uh, some days it works great and other days it doesn't. Hmm. Um. So I, you know, I, I've been inspired over the last few years in working with artists, not just like Sufian, but like Cheryl Warden or Angelo mm -hmm. or uh, Roberto Lange, you know, Halado Negro, um, just artists after artists. These are hard workers, like, mm. like in the sense that there's no blurring between personal and work. You know, it's all the same. They're always working. Yeah. And that has forced me to keep pace with them. So when I'm goofing off, I, I'm not being honest with the people that I'm trying to help and represent. Mm. So 
So I don't know if you could call it intentional because it often feels chaotic, but I think it's more about a philosophy of integrity and stewardship and trying to maintain pace with the people that I'm working with. Uh, If somebody else is working hard, then I feel compelled to work twice as hard (laughs) if I can. That's amazing. What drew you to to work for a label? What, What got you into music and the business side of music? Yeah, uh, it's very circuitous. So um, I was getting a a graduate degree in U.S. history, like cultural landscape history in Indianapolis, and just needed a side gig and was a stay-at-home dad. Mm. And Michael Kaufman um, and I connected. The Kaufmans had recently moved to Indianapolis. Uh, The Kaufmans are... Uh, Michael Kaufman and Liz James and their kids. Cool. And he just needed someone to work on the MySpace page and do some digital work <laughs> and some project management. And so that's kind of what I did on the side for several years while I was getting a degree. Um, the recession hit. Uh, Michael moved on to another job, so I took over as label director for a little bit. And then that's kind of it. Yeah, hmm. that was like around just shortly after Age of Odds, so 2012, 2013. Okay. And then we took a, we took a little break in 2015, I came to Atlanta to work for MailChimp, and then oh, yeah. about a year okay. and a half ago, realized um, I'm just not good at corp- corporate work. Wearing khakis. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, actually, <laughs> they, nobody. If you wore khakis at MailChimp, you would be out of place. Oh, okay. Um, it's one, it's okay. very okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Very techy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, not to go into that because it's way more boring than hearing us talk about Sufian, mm, but it no, really no. was an issue of. Um, realizing that it was an emotional expenditure to uh, like that idea of having to work, like that kind of ingrained idea that I've adopted from artists Mm -hmm. um, is not really uh, functional at a a corporate gig. Like your job is not to do your job. It's to ask permission to do your job. (laughs) Like it's to like, okay. Um, you know, to do the presentations and kind of build political uh, stature within the corporation so that you can accomplish 10% Mm. of what you really want to do. And it took me years to figure that out. And by the time I realized it, it was almost too late. So are you a creative person or are you creative in your role? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that uh, part of our gig of those of us that work at a label is to introduce, um, what is often thought of as non-creative constraints. So like the financial pragmatics and the marketing pragmatics, you know, Mm. when an artist turns over a record to us, we have to juggle their creative intent with kind of the realities of the market and release a record in a creative way. So Mm -hmm. we've always had fun with that. And um, we're always trying to think of new ways to do it. And so there's definitely a creative aspect to running a label. for sure. Yeah. Hey, listen, um, I don't want to keep you anymore. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been so much fun. So much fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Scott. It's been really fun to think about it and to talk with you and to be spied on by you. Yeah. Over the last yeah. Few well, weeks. I'll stop now. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford it. Oh, that's okay. You'll, you'll be getting the court order any day now. So we can wrap it up. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. This has just been so great. Of course. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for listening. Um, Check out asthmatickitty.com. John was kind enough to send me a copy of Angelo's 
um, latest record, the record we were talking about, Tomb, and it is so beautiful. I haven't stopped listening to it. It's so great. So make sure you check out that record. Um, I think the one song, Time, has like over 2 million plays on Spotify just in the past couple of months. It's such a great song and, and really a fantastic record. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already. And here's something kind of cool you can do that's um, really helpful algorithmic, algorithmically, if that's a word. Um, and, uh, and also it's just a kind of a positive encouragement for myself and for the podcast. And that's to not only subscribe, but to leave a review on Apple podcasts or on Spotify. I don't know if you can leave reviews on Spotify, but on iTunes, Apple podcasts, you can leave a review. So please do that. Um, only if it's a positive review, come on, I don't want to hear any negative stuff, but, um, please do that. That would really help. And, and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send me an email at podcast at other record labels.com. Thanks so much for listening. This was such a special episode. It was so great of John to do it. And, uh, I hope you enjoyed it.